This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to this week's episode of Behind the Screen, which is an edited version of a panel on artificial intelligence that was recorded October 19th at the VIEW Visual Effects and Computer Graphics Conference in Torino, Italy. I'm Carolyn Giardina, and I moderated this panel, which featured artist, designer, and creative technologist Scott Eaton, artist and designer, renderman Dylan Sisson, visual effects supervisor Andreas Manika, Richard Scott, CEO and co-founder of Axis Studios, and Daryl Ansimo an artist and designer who works in the gaming industry. Welcome everybody, I'm Carolyn Giardina, and um, this is the session on art and artificial intelligence. To start, I think we're going to just give each of our speakers a few minutes to talk about how they're using or addressing artificial intelligence at the moment, and then um, we'll open it up to conversation. And I think we're going to begin with Dylan. Thank you. My name is Dylan Sisson, of course, and I've been using AI for, I guess, a couple years now. And it's interesting to, for me, as uh, somebody that works in visual effects, uh, works with, with kind of writer-man development, just to see how I can apply uh, AI to my kind of traditional VFX pipeline. So I've been using it in different ways, seeing how it can can work. It's a little controversial. So even even in our office, there's some people that are pro-AI, some people are anti-AI. I think I'm the person that's most curious about what I can uh, do with it. Yeah, so I'm using it to make monsters and things like that. I am Daryl Anselmo. I've worked in the games industry for about 25 years, and I've seen a number of uh, various paradigm shifts in in my career. I've been using AI for about two years, and I'm really just exploring how it can be used and to help in the ideation process and and help in other other parts of it. I'm I'm currently not deploying it in production anywhere, but I'm AI curious and, and checking out what it can do. I'm Scott Eaton. I'm an independent artist, and I've been using AI uh, for maybe seven years. So it's, in a lot of ways, I refer to my work as machine learning in that it's, I craft my own data sets kind of locally, and I train my own models. And that's um, quite a contrast, I think, in methodology and kind of other implications versus some of the internet scale AIs that are kind of out there right now, and that is probably what most people are familiar with. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Andreas Monica, a visual effects supervisor, yes, in Vancouver. Uh, the way I've been sort of exploring uh, where this has taken us is, is more a curiosity of where it potentially could be going. And I think it is very exciting, but at the same time, it is, it's kind of scary and, and it kind of loses our humanity a little bit, but uh, that's, that's yet to be confirmed. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm uh, Richard Scott. As you can tell from my job title, I'm no longer an artist. I used to be an artist, 3D artist. Before that, I was doing uh, photo retouching uh, way back to Quantel graphic paint box days a long time ago. And 
I run a studio, so really my perspective here is what are the challenges of running a studio with hundreds of people in it and the concept of AI. Um, at the moment, we are not using AI in production. Um, there are lots of ranges of challenges for us as a studio to, to even think about using AI. Everything from the, um, the kind of moral, uh, ethical elements to it, which I'm sure we'll debate uh, here today. We even have clients of ours who have asked us to amend our contracts with them to say that we will not deploy AI in the creation of work for them and that all of the work has to be created by the hand of a human. And that's the actual phrase from the contract. So from my perspective, it, you know, what I'm trying to grapple with uh, is not necessarily in a way exactly what AI can do when it comes to generative art, but how do I, how could I, or could we deploy it within a studio? Could you elaborate a little on that contract? Is it, um, is it a general contract for use in any way, or is, it, is there specifics to actors? It is the contract, well, I'm, I'm trying, I'll try and stay on the right side of the non-disclosure agreement. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> the, con the contract essentially says that you will ensure that if you want to deploy generative AI of any type, not just art-based generative AI, but any type of generative AI, that you will, and you can make a case for it, then you can make a case with this client and they will opt in or opt out, essentially. And let's be honest, that means their legal department is going to review that situation and decide whether they think there is a copyright risk or not. <laughs> well, for those of you who are already starting to employ artificial intelligence, or have already started to employ artificial intelligence in your workflows, could you elaborate a little bit, a bit about how you're using it and where you're finding it useful? And Dylan, maybe you want to start? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. If you might have one of these lanyards around your neck, and if you look at it, you might see some of these Molay bots. This is a poster that I made, and it's one of my favorite posters that I made with generative AI. So I used a stable diffusion with ControlNet to generate this sort of thing. I think it's interesting to talk about using generative AI for, for final pixels, but uh, I'd be curious to know what your stance is about using generative AI for reference materials, you know, developing mood boards or shader packets. Uh, that actually inform the creative process of artists. I'd also like to, to tag that generative AI is not the only use of machine learning in um, VFX and production right now. Like We've deployed at Disney across the studios uh, a denoiser that's based on machine learning. It's been trained on assets from uh, the Walt Disney Company, from ILM, Pixar, and uh, WDAS, Walt Disney Animation Studios, that runs at the end of the rendering process so we can render partially converged images that look kind of noisy and it cleans them up really nicely. So there's some instances where we're using machine learning and AI approaches, but at Disney, we're not allowed to use generative AI to generate anything that's going to be on the, on, in a final pixel. I mean, there's another thing, usage case here, and it's, it's uh, the like AI upscaling or interpolation of, of um, a frame, so it's not necessarily just limited to the generative art form itself. It's, uh, it's improving certain processes, and even in art restoration, for example, is, is a huge business to clean up things that have been you know, potentially damaged or 
even preserve them for the future generations, which is, hasn't really been used before. But to, to speak to something that has been used is, yes, visual development, uh, idea generation, using it as a library for even as a Google search in a, in a way. When you're doing an image search, you, you're trying to find something and you may not necessarily find the right thing. So you may want to use one of these tool sets to, to try and create your own little library of a mood board, color board, or, or, any, or anything in that sort of sense. And I think that's where it's been really useful. Also, when you're trying to describe something to an artist and you may not find the right reference, one of these tool sets could be uh, used for that as well. When we were uh, talking earlier and we began our conversation and I asked you if you thought AI could help the creative process and you responded, unfortunately, yes, but I'd rather work with creative people. Do you want to elaborate on that point? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I got into this to to actually work with people, not to to work with bots. I mean, create bots, yes, but <laughs> not not to uh, to to be a slave to it in a way. It's it's more like I still want to feel like I'm creative and wanting to 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 push my boundaries of of knowledge and and emotion and get those things into artwork. So it's not for me like I absolutely want to work rather with with people. I think all what we do is a collaborative process. There shouldn't be just one person. But I'm talking from the visual effects sort of perspective. I think artwork itself is could be it's a is an emotional journey for a single person as well. Scott, how are you using it? I would add, you know, one of the things that I'm I'm helping out a lot of uh, uh, startups that are just getting off the ground and uh, in the games business. And and one of the things that I've started to observe in the pitch decks that are that are coming my way to to take a look at is. Almost every single one of them includes some sort of, uh, of, of generation in there to, to pitch the ideas that are coming across. So, I mean, as an art director, as producers are, are pitching me, as co-founders are pitching me to, to help work on, on their projects and, and express their visions to me, those visions are coming through in the, in, with mood boards and with, you know, even quote-unquote key art that has been generated. So, you know, it's something that, that is gaining traction. It is something that, that I am seeing in more parts of the creative process that, that is, is occurring more in the ide- ideation process. So um, uh, I just wanted to, to add that. So I think we have to make a distinction between what we might call narrow AI, right, which is what a couple people alluded to, and those are, those are like specific tools, right? And the term AI is a bit of a misnomer because there's nothing intelligent about selecting the jacket of a person in Photoshop, even though it's using like a trained AI model. It's a very narrow AI. It's in tracking, it's in super resolution, it's in denoising. It's it kind of crosses this, this boundary at a certain point when it becomes a more, well, I guess what we talk about is like generative AI. And that is, is something that draws on like a huge corpus, right? So it's, it's a corpus that largely was scraped right? Ethically or not ethically, text or images or audio or video even coming up. Uh, and so, like, I think that is the, the boundary where we see the polarity. You know, you see people polarized about generative AI, but everything else is just massive efficiency gains in things that were tedious and, you know, you didn't really want to do. You didn't want to do the little marquee selection around something in Photoshop when you can just click it, right? So it's amazing. And, and there's, there's a lot of progress across those fields. And we're also talking, like, largely focused on the entertainment industry. But, you know, this technology is being pushed out into science and medicine and engineering. And all of those things interface with the real world to make things better, 
maybe achieve things that weren't possible two years ago, five years ago. And so we are, you know, as creatives, we're really, you know, I guess polarized over, you know, how, well, everything, all the conversations about it, right? The ethics, the, the deployment, the displacement potentially of work. Um, but that is kind of one sector. Um, there's similar concerns everywhere, but also the potential for a lot of like narrow AI to, to do amazing things. I mean, people, people might've heard of like AlphaFold. Um, this was out of DeepMind uh, a few years ago now where they pretty much solved this protein folding competition to help drug discovery, to help treatments for like really you know, intractable problems. And they gave it away free to the science community. And so, you know, they didn't think that was solvable, but it's solvable. And so there is, there is good stuff happening out there as well. And it's just like we kind of get in a little echo chamber, I think, of like our immediate concerns creatively. Um, but yeah, there's, it's multifaceted. I mean, it, it, yeah, the cat's out of the bag. It, I don't, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, people are trying to create frameworks for how we can sort of work within these boundaries. But I, I feel like it's, there's, we can't stuff it back in. We, we have to, at some point, learn it and continue to learn it. But we need to ethically <laughs> make, make those frameworks work properly. Well, it, it's already been a part of the visual effects process for decades, really. I mean, it was, it was used to create the crowds in the Lord of the Rings. So depending on what type of AI, uh, we've, we've certainly seen it in tools for quite a while now. I mean, anyone who has a smartphone has been using it every single day for, you know, for the last few decades. So it's, it, there's a huge uh, spectrum, and it's just really come out in the last couple of years because of the visual language that's come out in, in, the, in the generative AI art form. So you know, It's been kind of percolating for a while, right? But I think last year was like kind of like ground zero where all of a sudden everybody was talking about it kind of everywhere we went. I, as far as the audience goes, is, is anybody really anti-AI, for, for especially generative AI? No hands were raised. Okay. Is anybody really pro-AI? How many people are actually using generative AI in their own projects? Okay. And we've had a few who are, that, did pro, that said pro-AI and quite a number who said they're using it in current projects. That's interesting to know. Well, the, the term uh, ethical AI we've been using certainly this year but, um, it, with increased frequency. Um, as we begin our conversation about that, um, I, I think the biggest question I wanted to ask is, is, that an, is ethical AI an achievable goal? No. I, I, honestly, I think it's all, everything, all technology is going to use for bad at some point by someone. So it, 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 I think the framework is what needs to be set into to place and, and laws and certain things of... Uh, I mean, most of it are already sort of ethically there in terms of law of what's what is legal and what what isn't. But people are still going to be using it for bad. Um, so it's it's not something that's going to completely be cut away. I think. So for the ethical question, are you talking about curating the data sets? Like that that that's where a lot of the ethics. That's certainly in, part right? of the the copyright conceivable copyright infringement, and, and there's lots of litigation that's out there in the world right now, like authors. Uh, bringing open AI to court, um, open AI claiming fair use, right? Because the, it's not possible to extract the exact text out the back end of a generative model. 
Um, so they claim that it's, it's fair use, and I don't think there's been uh, a resolution to that. Um, and, uh, but, there's been a, some attempts so far, like Adobe with Firefly. They've right. been trying to build a, a database based on uh, images that they, they have ownership of, um, which can be debatable. I think Shutterfly is doing the same thing. So Getty as well. Yeah. Getty. Getty. And, and I guess there's a question is, is that, does that, if, if that database is ethically sourced, does that make it ethical or are there, are there ethical um, elements to the question of AI? I think the, the open source is another lens that we have to look at that through as well because, you know, let's, let's say we're in a world where, where it is regulated and, uh, and, and, and training data somehow suddenly becomes something that, that you know, need, needs to be uh, cop you need to have correct copyrights of, well, suddenly you've got an open source movement as well, so it'd be like an underground that, that's likely going to weaponize and abuse um, uh, AI in, in, in some sorts of ways that I kind of have to agree with Andreas in the sense that it's, it's unlikely that it's going to get resolved. You know, there, there will always be fair cases and unfair cases, and I think society has a bit of a, um, a responsibility now, like it or not, to uh, help us define what is socially acceptable and what's not socially acceptable. It's like when your, your boss sends you a, an, an email and it's clearly written by ChatGPT. That's a cringe moment, and that's likely going to be socially unacceptable now. Those are the types, I think there's social pressures that are likely going to take place now too, and we're starting to see it already with mid-journey images mostly looking the same right now, where there's just it's difficult to coax an image out of mid-journey that looks unique, that represents the artist's or the prompter's vision. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so I think, I think socially we, we have a bit of a, a burden on our hands right now as well to, to help define that. Fortunately, as a society, we've never had any problems with ethics. Um, and uh, we have, we've, uh, have all the tools and we're well-equipped to deal with the situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I love using it, but I also hate using it. Um, and, I, and I feel like it's the dehumanization of, of art in that specific sense um, if we're talking about generative, generative art specifically but it's we kind of lose ourselves when we when when we don't actually train or use our emotions to create the artwork that we do when we just type something in it may not it doesn't feel right <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's uh, it has certain meaning well there's also a distinction between image making and art I mean every image is not art um, and so yeah, it, it, it's trivial now to make images that are a facsimile of what somebody else has made that looks that that they would describe as art. But and, and I thought your your talk yesterday, Scott, was was uh, was interesting when you're talking about out of distribution and in distribution. It kind of plays into this sort of um, you know all the images looking the same sort of thing. Yeah, and actually, I, I was going to mention this. So when Stable Diffusion came out, like I, one of my kind of artistic interests is not necessarily to make images with it, but to kind of probe it for what it knows from its scrape, right? From like, like the, 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 wet, the breadth and the width of its scrape of the internet to see what kind of cultural kind of artifacts it learns. And like the very first Stable Diffusion model that came out, I think they released 1.4 and then shortly after 1.5, that was a very rich model, like as far as what it contained from like probing it for concepts, and and it was quite interesting because they subsequently released like two and then XL, and kind of in between that, between the original release and those models, there was all the litigation, all the uproar, and 
it, it was clear to me using the subsequent models that they had sanitized a lot of the data out of it, or at least a lot of the, the text hooks that you could use to get at it, like, for example, artist names. Um, and so your, your comment about not being able to get good images out of mid-journey, I think is, is part of a, almost a cover-up is not the right word, but a, a slightly a backpedal from these companies training them taking into account a, maybe a little bit of the ethics. I think it's a liability. Yeah. Really, it's a liability issue, potentially. I think so much of what I've heard today on the talk has been about inspiration. Like, I think most of the talks I've watched this morning, there's been some element of, a, of that that's been about inspiration. Um, and, for, and to me, the, the, the most ethical use of AI that I can think of is, it's, as, as we've described in various ways, it's a tool just like on migration, the tool that was used initially for the character design to try and nail something was a watercolor brush, some watercolors, and that's where it all started from. But I think the problem is we all think we can use it as a tool, but everybody won't use it as a tool that, that, because it has the capability to do more than just be a tool or a, or a number of tools in a process. It has the ability to completely replace the process. And I guess that, that's, the, that's the bit, I think, what Andreas is saying is that that's why you'll never really tip over into that completely ethical version of it. I feel like it, it is the instant gratifications that we see just in society in general right now is, is kind of there. And it's, it, I feel like the mid-journeys and all these other stable diffusions and Dolly 3 and everything, they feed this. And it's, it's, it's doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. But at the same time, it is fun. <laughs> So, um, as many of you in the audience already know, um, this year they just settled a writer's strike and currently there's a SAG-AFTRA strike uh, in which AI was, um, uh, was a factor. And uh, next year, IATSE, which represents or groups such as cinematographers and film editors, um, will be negotiating their basic agreement, which will no doubt also um, include discussion of AI. Um, as we said on this panel, we can't put it away. It's out there now. Um, what are your thoughts on its impact on jobs? I mean, we've been using, yeah, especially the digi-double type of uh, conversations that are happening in, in, the, in the different strikes right now. Uh, we've been doing digitables for a very, very, very long time, and and I think it's it's not necessarily about that, but it's about creating archives with those digitables. And I think people are afraid of that part specifically. But I feel like we need to have a broader uh, discussion about just like Scott was saying about what the AI meaning is in that case. In this, like if it's narrow AI or if it's uh, what what the conversation is there. I think we just need to do more education of uh, of, of everyone. My. Uh my first job in the industry in the games business was 1995, and this was pre-Toy Story. And uh, I was brought in as a 3D modeler in an industry that was shifting very dramatically from D-paint and from sprite editing and from classically trained artists into a, a new world where the PlayStation was about to come out and we were transitioning quickly from a world of 2D graphics into 3D, 3D graphics. And then about six or seven years later was the introduction, the mass deployment of motion capture into into video game studios. And both of those technology paradigm shifts did result in job loss. They resulted in job change, retraining. There was also an art outsourcing movement that uh, impacted the games industry in the early 2000s was when that started to shift. 
And so on the, on the jobs topic, yes, AI, I think if you're, for example, trying to, if you're studying rotoscoping right now and you expect that it's going to be a 40-year career of rotoscoping, I think, I think that's probably the wrong mind, mindset to look at it. And the thing that, that's helped me through many of these paradigm shifts and is helping hopefully others through this current one that we're going through with generative AI is the ability to be adaptable and the ability to look at wider skills, try different things, and, and be curious. And that's what I think uh, is one, one of the aspects that, that, can, that can help us through this movement. But on the topic of job loss, yeah, yes, it is going to affect jobs. Let's get rid of UVing. Well, I think, I think that's right. Uh, jobs will be lost because, I mean, the proposal for AI is like massive efficiency gains, right? And there's financial incentives for any company that's employing people to, to be profitable. And the, the more efficient your employees are, the, probably the less employees you need. Um, and in some instances, right, if you just kind of analyze what you do day to day, and this was kind of goes back to my talk yesterday about like being human. Like if, you're, if your work day to day is, is measured in number of mouse clicks from the start of the day to the end of the day, and you're just interfacing with a computer, that is probably subject to automation, right? Which will be save somebody money, right? It'll save a company money as long as it's, you know, you talked about UVs. That's a craft of modeling and, and production pipeline. There are places where there's a lot of time spent doing that and that will be displaced, right? And at a large scale, if you, if you kind of extrapolate, the, there can't help but be displacement of employment. Yeah, and I mean, on that, on that specifically, people people are already becoming technicians in a way, and rather than than artists per se, that the traditional sense of an artist has, has changed. I think quite quite drastically. There's still obviously departments and so on that that do stay in the same thing, but yeah, maybe there will be a UV technician instead pushing buttons and sliders uh, to to get this stuff, or maybe you just type it into ChatGTP and say, "Hey, do this for me," and probably it will happen. Is there not though an opportunity then for for those? Or the artists to have more time to be creative, right? That's that's ultimately, I think, what it's going to come down to. And if we, that's what I mean again about using it as a tool to do more iterations, explore more deeply, gather information that you could never gather. You know, create imagery, inspirational imagery that that you couldn't create or as quickly. You know, all of these things will hopefully free up everyone in the creative roles, certainly to potentially be less bogged down in the technical, the technician part of that and be more creative. Now, but I think the problem is that artist roles over the last 10 to 15 years have evolved that some of them are incredibly creative when you're in ideation, origination of conceptualization. But in some, some roles, especially in, in, in 3D animation roles or 3D roles, I should, I should say, you're, you're straddling a fence between being an artist and being a, te a technician. And it's where those, what's going to happen to those particular roles? Will they become infinitesimally more creative because the technician part is taken away? Or will the role diminish almost to zero and therefore not, no longer? I, mean, I, I think that's the, the great promise and the great potential is that maybe we have a small group of artists that can all of a sudden punch up to a level and create a feature film on a, on a level that wasn't possible uh, maybe 10 years ago. And instead of focusing on like a lot of this technical minutia, they're free to actually act creative. I, I do think with, with the strike, as a society, those are the conversations we should be having right now. Sometimes when people ask me if, if they're gonna lose their job, I, you know, I try and be motivational. 
And I tell them, yes, most likely, probably, you're going to lose your job. I lost my job when I started off before, before I got to Pixar. I was working in wax and paste. I was working on edutainment CD-ROMs, things that don't even exist anymore. I've gone through a number of those things, and I, I got fired maybe three times, not because I was incompetent, not just because, but because the whole company shut down. And that, that, that was a very transformative time when kind of computers swept through kind of the artistic industry when I was starting out, and I got into 3D. So for me, seeing this kind of disruption, the, you know, as Maslow hierarchy of needs goes, you know, shelter and food is, is some of the first stuff, and so we worry about that. But at the same time, we have a front row seat to technology that nobody else in the history of the planet has used before, and that's kind of exciting, and that's, that's uh, something that we get to do in, in a big way. I guess some people are going to be impacted by this, like uh, truck drivers and cab drivers and folks like that, where we have self-driving cars. I don't want to go go into the ditch there. But um, I, I do think, as, as far as an artist and, and what we're capable of with the new tools, like that's what's fun to explore for me right now. On, on this sense as well, I think, uh, putting on the producer side, I, I mean, what, what you were saying about spending more time on, on the art, I'm hoping that the, the budgets won't go down so we actually do have that time to spend on it. But frankly, I think the budgets will probably go down because they will think, oh, it's so much easier to do, so you won't have to spend all that iteration on it. And it's the same thing with, with uh, high-performance high computing. You do get more iterations to do your work, to do your renders, because you can do, this, do them so much faster, but that a lot of the time doesn't translate into more time. That just means less time to do the work in. We're doing more shots in less time, year on year on year on year, right? So Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have a lot of young people in the audience and some students, I believe. Um, what advice would you give the next generation as far as what, what should they study, learn, or do to prepare for, for this area? I mean, from my perspective, if I look at the, the artists that we hire and freelance, full-time, whatever, whether you're using generative AI or not, you've got to have a sense of style, taste, panache, whatever the right word is. To me, all the same art fundamentals apply that have applied for the last whatever numbers of hundreds of years it probably is. I don't really think that just because you can type something into a prompt, if you don't have an eye for what makes a great looking image or what makes a great design or what, then how will you know what generative tool creates, whether it's any good or not? I mean, my wife openly not an artist, she comes from a math background, and she would never claim to use generative art tools and then be an artist, because she knows she's, she, she believes she doesn't have the artist's eye. You know, so I think ultimately, to me, all the fundamentals still apply. Nothing's changed there in my book. I would have to plus one panache. That's essential. But I completely agree that the fundamentals in a traditional media, traditional animation are super important. Um, you know, I think we all have background in actual practical media, and I draw on that knowledge, you know, constantly. And I think the, the folks that are going to be able to take advantage of AI and do something with it are the people that actually have foundations in history and technique. You are going to be then using it as a tool in your belt rather than just relying on it specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding composition in any shot is, is a lot of times what makes you know a, a frame look really beautiful. And if you don't have that eye, then yeah, yeah you're still going to need to go out and take photographs to, to really understand how, how some of this stuff works. 
I would, I would plus one that, and I would also add that um, I think it's important in this day and age to at least understand what the technology is capable of. If you're against it, at least understand what, 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 it, what it can do and, and, and explore the tools and, and, and just decide your, yourselves what bounds, boundaries you're willing to, uh, to use it, where, where your boundaries are. And I think it's important to at least understand what, uh, what, what the technology is capable of and, and where things are going. Without that, it's, uh, I think as Dylan uh, put it in his talk yesterday, ignore it, your own peril. Never put, a, put your, I guess, signature on any of the art pieces that you created. I'm going to plug Scott. Uh, he's an amazing figure, figure drawer. And he has a website called Bodies in Motion where, where you, all these kind of dynamic people in dynamic poses so you can actually study anatomy but you've used that for your own sort of a springboard for your own AI exploration which I think is somewhat relative here. Yeah I mean if you kind of take a step back from stable diffusion and these other models like there is the ability to really craft a tool for yourself. Again it kind of echoes what you guys just said about you know having aesthetic that you've developed over time as a young artist working in whatever, hopefully traditional media, because that's really where we need to be, how we evolve to, to, to be situated in the world. But the potential for like really enabling uh, your process through these tools in a way that doesn't fall afoul of whatever your particular ethics are. In as much as, say, for example, that you have cultivated a style and you really want to do a short film, a hand animated short film, you don't want to do every single in-between, but you can draw up a number of your own samples, you know, a number you're drawing, train a model on it, and then have it do some of the hard work for you. It it's, becomes an assistant. And it's all yours, right? So it's totally within the boundaries of, of what you've defined. In that way, it's, it's a tool. And I think that's safe, right? I think that's safe. I think that's empowering uh, creatively. It, but you have to, again, the, you have to be very careful about where your boundaries are because I think there's possibility of a dependence on ideation with some of these image generators, for example. Like, I worry in kind of the, the intermediate horizon, which would be maybe five years, for example, or ten years where people, maybe it's not our generation who have kind of grown up with one foot on both sides, but maybe the next generation where... It becomes like, like I mentioned in my talk, like a cognitive orthotic where it is just the thing that you do. Like you don't really ever, you don't write anymore. You prompt ChatGPT and you curate writing. You say, that's the one I want. Or you prompt an image and you're like, you curate it. But we all know like curation is not the same as the doing. I think that in the long run, finding that boundary where you have personal development, like develop your creative vision. Right? The, I think that's really important. And it's not clear where that is going to take us in, in the next few years because it's a slippery slope. Yeah, absolutely. And on Monday, I did a four-hour workshop on, on sort of video creation, quickly trying to get ideas out as, as a storyboard or, or a teaser trailer or something like that and, and using these tools. But it's definitely to try and create more education uh, across everywhere just because it's... I think everyone at some point needs to at least understand, yeah, what it's capable of and where, but then it's up to yourself to sort of put the limits on where you want to stop. What is the biggest misconception you're hearing about it right now? For me, I think it's probably that you can, well, there's probably two, and, and, and I'm nowhere near an expert compared to any of the guys on this panel, but I think one is that 
there is intelligence there, and that's got to be the biggest misconception, I think. And I'm not saying there won't be, but I don't believe there is at the moment. Like, I, I, a lot of things I've read at the moment is a lot of the models are about but what word comes next type approach, right? It's a kind of token-based system. They're looking for what's the next likely token in the line. But I think the other misconception is that you can completely replace creative talent. I, I read something on social media about an artist who was approached by a couple to... They'd written a book, I think, maybe, and they wanted to cover art for that book. And they had used... It themselves prompted a generative AI tool to create some images for some characters. And they asked this artist if here's some examples of the kind of things that we like. And the artist said, I'm really sorry, he was perfectly polite about the whole thing, said, I'm really sorry, I don't, I don't want to engage in this, this project because you have used generative AI. And they were like, oh, we, you know, and they, they didn't, until he explained to them how the generative AI tool that they used actually worked and where it got its data set from and all of those kinds of things, they didn't know that. So that it completely passed them by the the, con, the more controversial part of it, and ultimately they kind of apologised to this artist on that basis because they didn't understand really what the tool did. They just saw it as we can type stuff in here and we can get a result. So I think there's a as someone said it earlier. We were talking around the back there. A, a massive educational kind of process needs to go on. I think you know to everything that all the guys are saying here, what Scott's saying about narrow AI and training your own models and all these kinds of things. It's like it's not just these current tools that exist, and even the current tools that exist, most people don't understand how they were created. So I think those are, those are the big things to tackle. Yeah, it is. A, it a, absolutely is our responsibility to to at least try to, to educate as much as we can, or in, in, if we may even if we, we may not know understand everything, but we still have that responsibility because we are, we are still sitting up here and talking about it. We're out of time, unfortunately. I would like to thank Maria, Lena, and the team at View, And please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you, guys. Thank you.